This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash gesundheitpodcasts, um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. Hi, Ian here. Science Weekly is having a Christmas break. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, we're featuring a mini-series from our Guardian Australia colleagues called Weight of the World. In today's final episode, the Australian scientists who saw the crisis coming look back on their life's work, what it's meant to carry this burden and how they feel about the future. I hope you enjoy it. Decades ago, climate change scientists warned us about the future. That future is now. The era of climate change is here, it is terrifying, and it is just the beginning. In our last episode, Ofer Goldberg, Leslie Hughes and Graham Pearman told us about going public with their science. They predicted that reefs could die, species would go extinct, and temperatures would keep climbing. We can't afford, for example, to have the debate that goes on endlessly about whether climate change exists. This is the issue which we need to solve right now. And as the future becomes the present, they're clear on the need for urgent action. Let's not get sad, let's not get mad, let's get down and solve the problem. So in a time when it can all feel a bit too little, too late, how do these three scientists feel? Do they think they did enough? Are they hopeful? And how do they keep going? I say this to students that may ask, you know, what can I do? Should I not do science? Should I go off and do somewhere? And, and in the end, it's like, no, you live at a moment when we can solve this. I'm Graham Redfern, and this is Weight of the World. Part three, don't let a crisis go to waste. In the 1980s and 90s, Graham Pearman is a leader in climate change research. And part of his job is to brief prime ministers on the latest climate science. Did you think that if you put the evidence on the table in front of them, the policy will follow, they will do something about it, and you can move on to the next thing? The answer to that is yes. Uh, I think it's naivety that if you go through the whole process of the rigour of conducting science, that at the end of the day, surely people will understand what you're saying here. Uh, they will incorporate those risks into what they do and so on. Well, it doesn't work that way. Why do you think we haven't done more? I, I, think, I think it's about this fairly narrow view of the way society should be and that's dependence on, on wealth, wealth generation. And the conflict that I've seen within organisations like CSIRO between this dichotomy of simply developing knowledge about the way the world really is, separate from developing knowledge to make more money, because that's really muddied the water and made it very difficult to, to, to move forward. Mm. But the reality is, is that a period of nearly two decades, Australia went backwards. 
1990, the government of Bob Hawke briefly had a target to cut emissions by 20% by 2005. Yes, the Hawke government had a policy which was an impossible task, uh, but it was a policy and it was a policy recognised there was a problem that needed to be, be fixed. The Hawke government's target, of course, is never adopted. The first target Australia would adopt didn't come until 1997, when the Howard government goes to international climate talks in Kyoto. Australia manages to come away from those talks with a deal allowing it to actually increase its emissions. Since then, we've had the Paris Agreement and countries all around the world setting their own targets. All these countries have made commitments to reduce their emissions by so much by so, such a time. Uh, most of them are going to miss those targets. In Australia, we still have people talking about uh, utilising massive gas reserves that should never come out of the ground because whether we burn them or someone else burns them, they will contribute to further warming. We've got to stop this, not just Australia, but the global community has to. But Australia should be leading the way, not actually dragging its feet behind. So if you think I am advocating for action now, yes, I am. I'm not advocating what that action should be, but it has to do with the way we manage our transition, our energy transition from where we are to where we need to be. Has climate science and maybe societies more generally been completely outgunned by the fossil fuel industry? Till now, yes, absolutely. We need to rethink about the quality, quantity of a bureaucratic input to policy development that is sufficient to overcome the power of lobbyists that are involved in formally as lobbyists within the parliament, but also through the revolving structure of politicians becoming employed by companies or members becoming politicians. Very dangerous uh, in terms of ensuring that policy decisions are not biased towards particular industries or particular people. Ecologist Leslie Hughes also thinks that the vast wealth and influence of the fossil fuel industry has held progress back. Well, the fact is that fossil fuels underpin uh, the wealth of Australia, and they have for a long time. So Australia has become somewhat addicted to those income sources. You know, we know how to replace the electrons that fossil fuels provide. Our challenge now is to replace the dollars so that our way of life is not diminished, um, but we live lives that are a lighter touch on the planet. And we've still got a fair way to go, but it means that the fossil fuel industry, uh, because they're bringing in a lot of money, have been very powerful and we have to work on reducing the social licence of fossil fuels to operate and we need to transition out of those industries as fast as we can. This is indeed a new day. It is a new era. The Albanese government comes to power in 2022 on a wave of calls for climate action. We need to act and my government will act. We will lay a new foundation for sustainable growth and prosperity, a foundation that will move us from the era of inaction and delay to one where we create new jobs, new industries and drive down emissions. The government does improve its climate target, pledging to cut emissions by 43% by 2030. 
It also strengthens the power of the Climate Change Authority. That's a body that gives expert advice to government on policy and targets. Leslie Hughes is the authority's climate change science expert. But despite the positive initiatives, fossil fuel projects are still being approved. How do you feel about a government that continues to approve projects like that? Well, look, I think it's cognitive dissonance in in the government. So on the one hand, we do have a government that has set a higher target. It's still not high enough in terms of emissions reduction. We're not actually meeting that target, I should also say. The best analogy I can think of is imagine a weight loss program where, you know, you want to lose weight. And so you go to the gym and do, you know, a medium intensity workout and you feel like you should be congratulated because there's some guys over in the corner just like, let's call them Scott and Angus, doing some gentle stretching. But then on the way home from the gym, you stop off at McDonald's and eat three Macs with a side of fries. That's what the government is doing at the moment. You know, we've got the workout bit, which is rolling out and investing in renewable energy and and all of the policies to support EVs and all of that sort of thing. On the other hand, the continual approval of new coal mines is the McDonald's Big Macs. You've got to have both sides of the equation to actually progress, not just one, because if you don't do both, then one negates the other. So what do you think the target for Australia should be? Well, the Climate Council's work using carbon budget analysis is that we should be uh, emissions reduction target of 75% by 2030 and net zero by 2035. So a net zero target by 2050 is more than a decade too late to avoid going well over two degrees of warming. Do you have your own personal frustrations that we haven't made more progress? Oh, yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Uh, I can only see it from the perspective I can see it from, and that perspective is that we have known for a long time that a five-degree change in the planetary temperature is a difference between a full glacial period on Earth and a full interglacial period, five degrees. We've already changed it by more than one. And we're talking about whether we should try to restrict it to one and a half or two or three. These are massive changes in geological timescales. So, yeah, frustrating as hell that I should be part of a community and a time in which uh, humans are making those sorts of impacts on the global systems. Are you worried? Yeah. Can I do anything about it? Very little other than talking to you and hopefully people listening and having some conversion. I think we have a community that accepts there is a climate change issue, but the seriousness of the risk and the need for reaction, whether it be at the personal level, what you do about your own energy use and so on, or at the governments that you elect, either way I think uh, that's still wanting. We should see leadership that says, no, we've got to move. We know there are consequences for people's jobs, for communities, uh, for the people that they love. We know that. So how do we actually plan our way forward for it? I'm not seeing that. So, yes, I'm pretty pessimistic in this regard. 
and that pessimism is tending to overwhelm the optimism that I have. The predicament we're in now has been hard to miss. As a journalist that's been writing about climate change for a couple of decades, this is where it starts to get difficult. And yeah, sometimes it does all feel a bit helpless. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this series, to see if I can learn from the people who have known for most of their adult lives the intimate details of the climate crisis. For Leslie Hughes, witnessing the changes in the natural world she loves is difficult. Do you ever have allow yourself to grieve a little bit, maybe, for what I, I, we might be about to lose? I, yes, I do. I, I try not to because there's a point at which if you keep focusing on the negative and the grief, you're not in a position to do positive things and move forward. So I try not to. So I think for most climate change scientists, we, we become quite good at petitioning off bits of our brain. You know, you put all the negative stuff in a, in a little box and you put a wall around it and you try to keep going. Mm. And that's the only way we can. You know, from a purely science perspective, if you only think about just the black and white science, it's a very, very grim picture going forward. But if you then also twin that with thinking about um, hope, optimism, motivation, ingenuity, innovation, uh, motivation of, of people that care, that kind of leavens the, the catastrophizing. So, and I think most of us have all of that in our heads at the same time. The tragedy of losing a species just one species is difficult. Mm -hmm. But the idea of hundreds of thousands of species being at, at risk mm -hmm. from a changing climate, mm -hmm. how do you feel about that? How, does that weigh heavily on, on you? It, it does weigh heavily. It weighs heavily, especially when I go snorkelling, for example. You know, if you go snorkelling on the Great Barrier Reef um, and the Great Barrier Reef suffered four massive bleaching events uh, within the space of seven years due to marine heat waves. And that's when it really comes home to me because you, you, you snorkel in these gorgeous places with this just incredible life and you think 10, 20, 30 years' time, will this all be gone? And that's when it makes me cry. Marine scientist Ofer Goldberg first swam on the Great Barrier Reef as a child. He's been in love with coral reefs ever since. So the 10-year-old, oh, full of hope and optimism, seeing this wonderful reef for the first time. And has the experience of diving on a reef changed now that you know of their potential fate? I'd say it has, and it's, it's changed in this way that I, when I swim across a reef, it's a million miles from that 10-year-old kid, and what I'm seeing is a sort of a problem. Heat waves aren't just setting records on land, they're also setting records at sea. Ocean temperatures are warming at an unprecedented rate with 40% of global oceans currently experiencing a heat wave. Now we've got this current trajectory of temperature rise just literally going off track. It's getting so warm out there. And immediately when you jump into the water, it feels like you are in a hot tub. 
And it is really a big impact when you mm. think about the scale of the habitat when you're talking hundreds of square kilometres. And what I'm seeing right now are stark white corals that are undergoing what we call bleaching. You think of those million species, you know, this is a resource which will disappear. If corals can't recover, can lead to their pretty immediate death. But I need to stand back and say, OK, yes, there are problems, but we need to really focus on the solutions now. Mm. It'd be great if it was like, OK, early 1990s, we went, good gracious, coral reefs are heating up and they're starting to die. This is what we need to do in terms of, you know, reducing emissions to enable them to survive. But of course, that's not the situation. We are embarking with policies that are really not sufficient to solve the problem. Mm. So if you take all of the dedications, the promises, and, and, and apply them across all countries, you still are on the track to three degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial period. What's that mean for coral reefs? It's very, very difficult to see anything else but a catastrophe developing. And I think you'd have to say that this current set of events is really deserves enormous attention because it looks like it could be relating to tipping points and so on. <sighs> if this gets any worse, we won't have the Great Barrier Reef. I, lo I looked at the paper that you wrote in 1999 and there were some interesting charts in there. Mm. Um, I think that it, it was showing that most regions of the Great Barrier Reef would be seeing at or close to annual bleaching sort of in the 2020s. Yeah. Uh, here we are. Do you take any satisfaction in sort of being right? <laughs> Told you so. Mm. No, I don't. You know, to turn around and say... I told you so, it's just not useful. It's like, let that water go under the bridge and let's get on with bringing people along to not only contemplate, you know, what we've been doing wrong, but actually how do we solve the problem? How do you feel when maybe you've, you've met politicians and they've made big promises to you and then <laughs> they, they approve another coal mine? Yeah, look, I think this is a tricky situation because there are many you know, dimensions to this. I mean, there are commitments made before that need to be honoured and all of that. But this is a planetary emergency. We should not be sort of saying we're taking action on climate change at the same time, assist companies to find more oil and gas and coal to burn. Every little bit of CO2 that goes in the atmosphere has a huge impact. We need to face up to this and get on with the problem of phasing out these, these activities. Unless you do that, Australia has no possibility of meeting its emission reduction targets. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. 
If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. Governments are always fond of talking about how much climate action costs. They very rarely talk about the cost of inaction in terms of dealing with the impacts. And Australia is a classic case on that. So there was a Productivity Commission report a few years ago which pointed out that um, when we think about disaster spending, about 95% of it is spent cleaning up afterwards and only about 5% on preparing for it in the first place. Um, that's an example of externalities not being priced because if we did do it, um, we'd be preparing for disasters much better and have less to clean up. More than 20 years ago, Leslie Hughes could see climate change was affecting species. And we know CO2 levels have only increased since then. Hughes has thought for a long time that we don't just need to be a lot bolder in cutting our reliance on fossil fuels. We need to be bolder in how we help species survive. Well, I've always felt that we needed to be much more interventionist, that we should have been doing things like moving species. And what we call assisted colonisation is deliberately taking a species and putting it in a place where we don't think it's ever been before, but where it might be safer in the future as the climate continues to change. So the idea that we would intervene, why is that such a divisive idea? Well, the word conservation and conservative come from the same root. They come from the, the Latin verb conservare, which has lots of meanings, but one of it is to stay the same. You know, a lot of conservationists think that their role is to make things stay the same. So the idea of taking a species out of where it's been for the last hundreds of thousands of years or maybe longer and deliberately move it to an entirely new place is, is really challenging for people. Now, of course, um, the main risk is that, you know, you put a species in a new place and it will might eat things or be eaten or compete with other animals or plants um, and, you know, cause more problems than you've solved. That is a risk. But if we understand those risks, if we, if we do it with the best possible scientific understanding, I think we could save a lot more species than we might if we don't intervene. Yeah, I mean, we run this open experiment in the atmosphere where yes. we, we we dump our climate pollution into the atmosphere like it's yeah. an open sewer. Yeah, and, but and, we can't move a possum. But we can't move a possum. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really bizarre. And that makes me cross. For coral reefs, the prognosis right now is dire. Unlike, say, possums, you can't pick them up and move them to more hospitable parts of the ocean. But Ofo Goldberg hasn't given up. One of his roles is an expert advisor to the Coral Reef Rescue Initiative. It's a project that suggests that if you find reefs that are not as exposed to rising temperatures as others, then those reefs could at some point regenerate the rest of the planet's coral reefs. It's like saving a bunch of endangered trees and then using their seeds to reforest the landscape. If we can save those pieces of reef... If you can do that, then you start to preserve the stock, if you like, that will, once we have stabilised the climate, will allow 
the baby corals from these regions to sort of infect other parts of the reef and to speed reef recovery. Because what we do know is that if we flatten out the climate in terms of reduce the increases in temperature and just stabilise, coral reefs can rebound very quickly. And so when I start to think in those terms, I no longer feel, you know, incapacitated. I feel like we can get on and do this. But in many ways, it's all about communication now. It's all about trying to make people care. So we know climate change is complex, but aren't the solutions pretty simple? I I think it is simple. Um, How you get to, to do that is complex because what you're doing is upending societal commitments to uh, fossil fuels that we've built uh, for over 100 years. Turning it around is not easy. I wouldn't pretend uh, that is the case. So uh, while it's clear what we have to do, I wouldn't underestimate the difficulty of doing it. Yeah. What could the world look like in 50 years if we made good decisions now? We can't avoid the uh, issue that the global ocean temperatures that are now warmer by a degree or so than they were will remain so for hundreds of years. That can't be turned around. But the lifetime of methane, for example, is only about 10 years. So if you do something about the gas industry emissions, uh, then you can get a response within a decade. CO2, the lifetime, average lifetime is about 100 years. So if you do something over the next 50 years, you can start to see a result over those time periods. So, yes, I think it's possible for us to turn the situation around, but it needs immediate responses, not responses a decade away. So people who are, and there are people that are doing this, setting uh, 20% or 30% or 50% reduction targets by 2030, are the ones that we should be concentrating on. The concept of achieving a target in 2050 is almost useless. Useless, why? Because it's too late. There there is, I think, quite a lot of climate anxiety out there now, but we know just from the physics of it that it's not going to get any better... For a long time. For a long time. Yep. How do you keep people hopeful? What do you tell them? I guess, well, there's a, there's a saying in the climate movement that the antidote to despair is action. It's a slogan, but I think it's a really important slogan. If you just sort of sit around wringing your hands and saying we're all doomed without actually getting off the couch to do something we are indeed all doomed. You know, the atmosphere is not affected by what we think. It's only affected by what we do. So the way I try to put it to people is, look, it's bad now. It is going to get even worse. We have to be prepared to cope and adapt, but we should use this as another teaching moment to promote urgency. And the way, the best way I know not to feel despairing and helpless is to do something. And so I feel that my job now as a communicator is not even so much to explain the science anymore, though if people want me to do that, I can do that. It's to actually motivate action. But there are some climate scientists 
that are going even further. They're, yeah, they're, they are. they're chaining themselves to things. Yes. Is that ever something that you have contemplated? It's a really good question. Um, I don't think I have the courage, actually, to go and chain myself to something and risk arrest. Um, but I will tell you a story that happened um, a few months back where I went and gave a, a talk to a group called Rising Tide, which is a climate activist group in Newcastle, um, who are really activist. I gave them a climate science talk and the next day 50 of them were arrested by climbing onto a coal train. Now, I think they probably would have gone and done that anyway, even without my talk, but, but maybe I, <laughs> I motivated a few extra Look, I think, you know, people take up the challenge of climate change in all sorts of different ways. Some of them will feel that they need to go and chain themselves to a coal train, and I admire their courage for doing that. It comes back to what I said about focusing on what you're good at and doing that. You know, I think I'm better off going around giving talks to people um, and getting them to, to be motivated to do whatever, whether it's buy an electric vehicle or get arrested. Um, but that's their choice and I wouldn't condemn their choices. But um, at the moment I have uh, resisted being in a situation where I could possibly get arrested so far. It must be hard for someone like Graham Pearman, who knew 50 years ago that humans were changing the climate. From a personal perspective, yeah, it's frustrating because I wonder what I could have done. I often wonder, you know, where did I go wrong? If the sense that if I'm trying to convey to people that there was a risk associated with this issue, uh, why didn't people respond? Is that my responsibility? And with the benefit of hindsight, does Pearman still believe that steering clear of advocacy was his best tactic? I, I think it was. Um, I still hold pretty fast to that concept that um, science has got to be independent. Policy options are always about all sorts of things, uh, the existing economics, the social impacts, job creation, all of those various things. And so it's not possible for a climate scientist to actually specify what the policy should be, take in regard all of the possibilities and all of the issues that are involved. But at the end of the day, I think the, the uh, reason why people will listen to science is because it is independent. And what about how climate scientists cope personally with the devastation that they see? So, yeah, I mean, how do you cope? Well, you've got to keep on fighting, you've got to, you know, be in there with the boots on and stuff. You know, my kids, I've got to think about, I, I don't want them to grow up in having a hopeless view on the world because it's still an amazing reef system. Mm. It's, it's still, there's still stuff to do uh, to solve the problem. I mean, for example, we did a study recently that asked, you know, if you, if you took uh, seven sectors of human activities in the ocean, putting floating renewable sort of wind, or um, uh, revolutionising the transport of vessels, the, the mm. car, you know, so you have hydrogen motors or whatever. You did all these sort of things. You can actually take up to half of the uh, emissions you need to uh, reduce to get on that 1.5 degree Celsius track. That, to me, again, was an aha moment. Have all these people around the table experts in shipping and renewables and all those sort of things. These are the experts. They know what, where the trends are going. From this group itself, we're saying, okay, no, we can actually 
you know, begin with technology that's straight off the shelf, can be applied right now, and it's, um, you know, it'll take care of this, you know, 50% of emissions mm. needed to close the gap between uh, our current policy going to three degrees and, and, and the policy of, of, of staying at 1.5 mm. degrees Celsius. That gets me to put my boots back on and mm. get out there and, 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 and get back involved. That, you know, that to me, you know, lightens the, the mood. Mm. And if everyone's on board, it's, it's soluble. Mm. But we need to get everybody on board and apply these, these solutions. Your greatest fear? My greatest fear is runaway climate change, where we get to a, a tipping point in the climate system where it doesn't matter what we do, where there is so much heating, which has affected ocean circulation or tundra melting or methyl clathrates from the ocean or, or whatever, where the positive feedback set in to the point where we get this hothouse earth and there's nothing else we can do. That's what I think all climate scientists absolutely dread. You know, I often use the analogy that a tipping point's like the edge of a cliff and we're driving towards the edge of a cliff in a bus, um, but it's foggy, so we don't know where the edge is. We know it's there, but we don't know where it is. But given that, we should be putting the brakes on. Do you... Um... Do you ever ask yourself, could I have done anything different? Yeah, look, I ask myself that all the time. And it's not just me. Obviously, there are millions of people like me doing their best to raise awareness and to, to, to alter the course of history. I think all we can tell ourselves is if we weren't doing this, how much worse would it be? You know, if there wasn't renewable energy, if there wasn't uh, policies to reduce emissions things would be getting even worse, even faster. So I have a responsibility to do whatever I can. So I focus on what I think I can do well, and that's all I can do. And no one can do everything, but everybody can do something. So the way I keep going mentally is to say, all right, what can I contribute? I'm going to try and do that the best I can. to the World was produced by me, Graham Redfern, and Camilla Hannan. Sound design and mixing by James Milson and Camilla Hannan. Production assistance by Melanie Chun, Jacob Wallace, and Daniel Seymour. The executive producer is Miles Martignoni. We've also produced videos and articles as part of this series, and to have a look, go to theguardian.com, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes. If you like the series... Tell your friends and give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And thanks for listening. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingspodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Nachrichten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. 
Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash gesundheitpodcasts, um noch mehr rund um Fitness und Gesundheit zu lernen. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.